Well, yes, I can hear you just fine, Mark. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, thanks for the invite to the meeting. My name's Mark. I'm an alcoholic. And um, my home group is Nowra. There is a solution recovery group. And Nowra is a small town on the New South Wales south coast. It's about two hours south of Sydney. And um, it's in this town where I first joined Alcoholics Anonymous as a member. And I've been fortunate enough to stay sober um, from my first meeting up until now. And my sobriety dates the 17th of January, 1996. So with God's continued grace in a few few weeks, I'll be 28 years sober, which I'm really happy about. Um, my life has changed so much since uh, the days when I was drinking. And um, so thanks so much for the invite and the opportunity to share my experience, strength and hope. And um, what I'd like to do um, is I'm going to share screens because at the start of this, like every journey starts with the first step. And I've sort of been asked to, to share my experience on, you know, how I established my relationship with God. And uh, to do that, I've got to briefly talk about the first step because without that, without the suffering without the humiliation, without the 20 years as a practicing alcoholic, I never ever would have uh, made it to AA and found a loving God and found a new life. So it's really important for me to remember where I came from. And um, I'll just share this with you. I hope this is all going to work. Can you see that? Cool. So, as we know, um, Dr. William D. Silkworth wrote the doctor's opinion in the front of the big book, and here's a quote from Bill W. out of AA Comes of Age. It's on page 13, and it says, uh, he supplied us with the tools with which to puncture the toughest alcoholic ego, those shattering phrases by which he describes our illness, the obsession of the mind that compels us to drink, and the allergy of the body that condemns us to go mad or die. These were indispensable passwords. Dr. Silkworth taught us how to till the black soil of hopelessness out of which every single spiritual awakening in our fellowship has since flowered. And that's from AA Comes of Age, page 13. Um, yeah, so, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I drank for 20 years. And when I was drinking, I had no idea that I was suffering from alcoholism. Um, I, If someone would have asked me what an alcoholic was, I would not have been able to give a, an accurate description at all. But I certainly would have said that I wasn't one. And what I've come to understand is that's one of the main symptoms, if you like, of alcoholism is that I don't have it. That's one of the main things that I've experienced over the years of my drinking and what I've seen from so many other alcoholics since I've been in AA is I just can't see that I have the problem. So there's these huge layers of delusion around my alcoholism and I'm completely blind to it. I'm an, an I'm a expert and a world champion at justification and I continually look outside of myself to lay the blame at the feet of others. And I just can't get honest about it. 
and that nearly killed me. It nearly destroyed me. Um, so while I was drinking for those 20 years, I had no idea that I was tilling the black soil of my hopelessness. I had no idea that's what I was doing. But when I was living out my powerlessness for those 20 years and I couldn't stop drinking, that's exactly what I was doing. I was getting ready. I was preparing to admit complete defeat. Um, and I knew none of this. This is all in hindsight. It's all looking back. It's all making sense of my life. And it's because I've woken up. As it says there, it's the black soil of hopelessness out of which every single spiritual awakening in our fellowship has since flowered. So this is where it began, you know, with those 20 years of active alcoholism and I couldn't stop and I had no idea what I was suffering from and uh, I made it to AA in the nick of time. And that's all I can say. It was my time. It was my time when I made it to Alcoholics Anonymous. So... I'm just going to swap over. I've got one more slide I want to show, and then I'll get rid of the slides. Can you see that different slide now? Has that changed? Cool. Okay. So, so this is the, the cycle of active alcoholism in the doctor's opinion. Um, and I noticed this morning when I was looking in that middle uh, rectangle there, the blue rectangle, those pages are wrong. The, they're actually uh, the right pages in the third edition, and I did get sober on the third edition, not the fourth edition. But it's uh, nevertheless, it's um, in the doctor's opinion, um, and it describes it very well of that active alcoholism and tilling the soil and experiencing what it's like to be an active alcoholic um, and like I said, for me personally, I did that for 20 years before I made it to Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the doctor's opinion, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while it is, we ad they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable and discontented unless they can again experience the sense and ease and comfort which would come at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, and so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And this is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. And that's what this simple diagram explains, doesn't it? That cycle of active alcoholism. And up the top, this is what I'm like when I'm dry. This is what I'm like when I'm not drinking. I tend to be restless, irritable and discontent. So I have all this internal discomfort. I just don't feel right. I just don't feel settled. I have all this disquiet and uncomfortability and I don't like to feel like that, you know, and my mind remembers, my mind remembers the sense and ease and comfort, which would come at once by taking that first drink there. So all action is born in thought. So even though I might, you know, have destroyed my life, 
even though for me, I was in the park drinking cheap wine and feeling sorry for myself, even though I'd my marriage had ended and lots of horrible things had happened and I'd become homeless and penniless, I still could not see that I had a problem. My mind would still remember the sense and ease and comfort, which would come at once by taking a few drinks. So I'd reach over and pick up the first drink. And the phenomenon of craving would start and I'd down the bottom, I'd go through the well-known stages of a spree and I would drink and drink and drink and drink. And I've never, ever been able to pull that up. I've always been someone who, once I started to drink, I wanted to drink more and more and more. And the more I drank, the thirstier I got. And that's what I was always like when I was drinking. And then down in that bottom left-hand corner, I would come to the next day and I'd emerge remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And I was I was a blackout drinker too. And I used to come out of blackouts in all sorts of weird and wacky situations. Um, and I would feel very remorseful about what had happened. Um, and But I would do it again. That's the fact. I would do it again straight away. I would go back and I'd pick up the first drink again because I'd be restless, irritable and discontented. And this was repeated over and over and over. And for me, the end of my drinking, um, it was around December 1995. Um, I, had already, I had already married an alcoholic many years before. Um, I met my future wife in an early opener drinking schooners. In Australia, we call them schooners. That's like a large glass. It's like nearly a pint. And I used to get in these early openers and I would be drinking in there. And one morning I was in an early opener about 5.30, drinking schooners to get rid of the jitters. And there was this woman in there and she was doing the same thing, drinking at that time. And, um, you know, that's where I met my future wife. Like, what was I thinking? I had no idea. You know what I mean? No idea. I never, ever considered that she, here she was drinking schooners at 5.30, that she might have a problem. Never considered that I had a problem. So, you know, we ended up getting married and we had a young son, Luke. Um, and, you know, it became a battle over the bottle and it went on endlessly, the active alcoholism. And then she eventually, in 1994, she died drunk from her alcoholism. She had a huge seizure and she died in my arms from alcoholism, humiliated. Um, I was drunk at a funeral. I was drunk every day. I couldn't stay sober for a day. I did end up in the park. So I ended up pushing around my young son in a pram looking for cigarette butts on the streets of Sydney. And I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. And what happened to me uh, around December 1995, I went on this huge drinking spree. Uh, I had been sleeping on the lounge of a mate's place in the suburbs of Sydney. I ended up in King's Cross, which is in the middle of Sydney. And I was drinking around there, running around in blackouts, doing all sorts of other things, like a complete lunatic. I was extremely antisocial. I was disgusting when I was an active alcoholic. Um, and that around the mid-January 1996, the 16th of January it was, 1996, I ended up uh, going back to the suburbs where I'd been sleeping on that guy's lounge and I knocked on the door 
it was about eight o'clock on a Monday morning and this guy hadn't seen me for six weeks and he was minding my young son, Luke. And he opened the door and he was getting ready to go to work. And here I am standing at the front door after being missing for six weeks and he's been minding my two-year-old child who's already lost his mother. And he took one look at me. I'm not going to swear, but uh, he said, you're effing hopeless and you got to go. That's all he said to me. And I burst into tears like a baby. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I had this moment of grace. And then he left it with me. He said, I've got to go to work. See ya. And he, went, he left. And I ended up making a phone call. And I rang my mother. And at that stage in my life, my mother was the only person in the family that would speak to me. My father wouldn't speak to me. My older brothers wouldn't speak to me. I wore them all out. But my mother took my call and with her help, uh, I ended up in a detox unit, um, which is part of the Wollongong Hospital. That detox unit has been bulldozed many years ago. It doesn't even exist anymore. But I went into this detox unit and I think I was there for seven or nine days. And when I got out of there, um, I went to a treatment facility here in Nowra and I was introduced to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time. But why this whole thing is so important and this first step, um, without it, without it, I knew it never would have had that moment of grace. I never, ever would have seen myself for exactly what I was. you know. And when that guy said to me, you're effing hopeless and you got to go, when he said that to me, that was exactly the time I needed to hear it. If he would have said it the day before, I don't know whether I would have heard it. If he would have said it the day after, I'm not sure. But that day was my day and I heard what he said and I took it to heart. I took it to heart. I really did. And I rang my mum and I ended up getting in this detox. Um, but this chilling the black soil of hopelessness, it's written in many different ways in different parts of AA literature, in the big book and in other places. And in the 12 and 12 on page 22, it says the principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. So in other words, you know, by tilling the soil and preparing for a new life, I was able to plant a seed which has now got a strong taproot. It's like building your recovery on a firm foundation and taking the first step 100%. Because remember, that's what it says in the 12 and 12. It's the only step we have to take 100% is the first step. But if I don't take it 100%, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to find the willingness, the honesty and the open-mindedness to move on to the solution and start to live the program. You know, So that's why it's fundamental to recovery is every journey does start with the first step. Even the journey to find a loving God starts with this powerlessness. And this is where it begins. And Bill said this, didn't he? You know, this is our greatest strength is our weakness. This is where it comes from, you know. So I admitted complete defeat that day. It's like I got out the little white flag and I admitted complete defeat. And I ended up in that detox unit. And like I said, I didn't understand alcoholism or powerlessness or AA or any of that at that stage. But looking back in hindsight, that's what was happening for me. 
I had this moment of grace. I saw the truth and I did something about it. And when I left that detox unit, um, geez, I got out of that place and I had to catch a train from Wollongong on the south coast further down to Nowra, which is about, I don't know, at least an, at least an hour sort of trip um, to get down to this uh, treatment facility I was going to go to. And the other three or four guys that I left that unit with, they all walked straight into the bar on that railway station and started drinking again. And I can remember it was the longest five minutes ever. I had to wait for the train and I can remember going right to the end of the platform and standing there near this little white steel fence and just basically begging this train to get there so I could get on it, get away from that bar and get down to this treatment facility that I was headed for. And I made it on that train. I got down there. And like I said, I got introduced to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. A few members in the local area were carrying meetings into that place on a Monday, Tuesday and Friday, and they carried the message to me, you know. And, and that is explained, you know, going back to the big book on page 17, and there is a solution. It explains that. And it explains what I got exposed to and the connections I started to make. You know, it says here, we are people who would normally not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. I love that sentence. It's indescribably wonderful, you know, and I could feel it in that first meeting. I, I, I really can't recall what people were talking about. I don't know what words they were using, but I know how I felt. There was something happening in that meeting and I knew exactly what they were talking about. When people got up and they shared their experience, strength and their hope and they talked about their active alcoholism, you know, grown men got up there and said things like they were full of fear and they couldn't stop drinking and they didn't understand it and they were living a much better life now because they were doing Alcoholics Anonymous and they were there to carry the message to guys like me who were looking for a way out. So I was identifying right from the very beginning, and that's what this is all about, isn't it? You know, again, it's in the literature, it's in our fifth tradition, it's in the 12th step. It's all about one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. And uh, and that day in that first meeting when I arrived at that place, I was listening, believe me. I was listening to what they had to say, and that's because I did have this moment of grace. That's because all the years of active alcoholism had prepared the soil for a new life, you know. So it's really important that I remember all this stuff. And this is this is how I built my recovery on a firm foundation. Um, and that sort of brings me to, you know, that was on the first page of There Is A Solution. On the last page of There Is A Solution is the flyer that I was sent um, talking about how I established my relationship with God. That, of course, comes from page 29 in the big book. And this is an important part of recovery too. It says each individual in the, I'll stop sharing that. So I'll get rid of that. So you can see me again. Um, each individual in their personal stories describes in their own language and from their own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. These give a fair cross section of our membership and a clear cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider the self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need 
will see these pages and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that we will be able, sorry, that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. So really that last bit there about fully disclosing ourselves. So what that means to me is like, if I had to say that in one word, what that would mean, I would say that means being vulnerable. And that's the last thing I ever wanted to be, I can tell you, <laughs> is to be vulnerable and show you really what's happening. You know, so this is where the honesty, the open-mindedness and the willingness has to come in. It's really important. It says in the back of the big book, it says these are the essentials of recovery. In other words, they're absolutely indispensable, you know, that I start to get honest and I have this willingness and I open my mind up to the possibility that these people who I have just met and I normally wouldn't mix with are telling me the truth and they're sharing their experience, strength and hope and they want me, if I'm willing, to get sober, you know, and they care about me and they want to love me back to life. But am I ready for that? Am, am I really ready for that? Is it my time? And it was. It has been my time. Right up until today, that has been the truth because that's a long, long time ago since I went to that first meeting and I haven't had a drink since. I'm still sober and my life has changed completely. You know, But it's all connected to that first step. It's all connected to that surrender and that moment of grace that I experienced that day when that guy said that to me. You know, So... It's really important that I remember that. This is what this is about. It's about um, opening up my mind and accepting that I don't have the answers, accepting that the way I've been trying to live life is simply not working, you know, and um, it's my time now to do something different. So that's what I did. I co connected to the fellowship. You know, and it is indescribably wonderful. But down the bottom of that page, it also says that the fellowship itself is not enough. It says that it's definitely part of the power and it's definitely part of the solution. But it also goes on to say, you know, that there's a program that I can practice too. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is what this is really about. It says the tremendous fact for every one of us is we have discovered a common solution we have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So then the next challenge for me was I had to get a sponsor and I had to start to work through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'd taken step one and the simplicity of step two is that part of the power is in the fellowship. But the ultimate power is going to be connecting up to a power greater than me. Or, as I've come to understand it in later years, a loving God. And there's a question on page 47, um, which simplifies the second step. You know, in all the years I've been in AA and all the guys I've sponsored in that time, a lot of people want to um, complicate the second step. But it says several times that it's a simple program and it's a simple step, the second step. And in the middle of page 47, 
it sort of proves to me how simple this really is. It says we needed to ask ourselves but one short question. So not two questions or 10 questions or anything like that, just one question. It's saying that I need to ask myself. And it says, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? That's the question. Um, and it's the only question I need to answer when I'm starting off on the journey of recovery in respect to the second step. And it says, as soon as a man can say he does believe or he's even willing to believe, we emphatically assure him he's on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, there it is, simple. This is not complicated. It's not easy, but it is simple. It says, upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderful and effective spiritual structure can be built. So I, I ask myself that question, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? And the answer is absolutely yes. That's it. Move on now. Move on to the third step. And the reason I believe I was able to answer that question so promptly and without um, hesitation is because of the depth that I had taken the first step. You know what I mean? If you suffer long enough and bad enough and the time is right for you, it's like, I'll do anything. I don't care what I've got to do. I'll do anything you ask me to do because I'm so beaten, I'm so broken, and I know that I'm going to die if I don't. You know, so this in the beginning, it's all based on self-interest. This whole idea of sober, sobering up, I never imagined, you know what I mean, that I would live this wonderful life and find a relationship with a loving God and be sponsoring people and be doing service in the fellowship and becoming a delegate and doing all these different things I've done over the years. I never imagined I'd do any of that. I didn't have a clue. You know, all I was doing was looking for a way out. I wanted it to stop. And here I'm being offered this simple solution. This is the solution, Mark. We're going to lay it at your feet. What are you going to do? You're at the turning point. What am I going to do? Either God is everything or God is nothing. What is my choice to be? I'm at the turning point. And it's up to me. It's up to me. Am I ready? Am I not ready? You know, pretty simple stuff. And the other thing that I'll say about this, um, one of AA's great friends, um, Father Ed Dowling, uh, you know, he, he used to say if he ever found himself in heaven, it would only be from backing away from hell. You know, and this is the same sort of idea. This is why I was doing this. I was backing away from hell. You know, I, I never came here looking for sobriety and a different life and living spiritually and spending countless hours working with others. And I never thought of any of that. I just wanted it all to stop. I was done. It's that simple. And when you're done, you're done. You know. And so as a result of those first two steps, I'm at the turning point and I'm ready to take the third step. You know, um, and it says now if I just go over to page 60, um being convinced we we're at step three, which we decided to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? And then it talks about the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. So in a simplistic way, again, 
you know, I just have to get out of the centre. That's what I have to do. You know, I've learned that I have been a selfish and self-centred alcoholic. And the best way to start this recovery journey, now that I'm at the turning point, is get out of the centre. You know, that's where God belongs. God is the core of life. This is where life begins with God at the core of it in spiritual living. And I'm being simply asked to get out of the centre and make a decision, and that's all it is. It's just a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. And, of course, that's um, the start of that is the formal surrender on page 63 with the third step prayer. And I got on my knees and I said that prayer and I said it sincerely and I had no idea really what I was doing, but I did it anyway. <laughs> no really, no real clue of how this any of this was going to turn out, whether I'd stay sober or whether I wouldn't. But again, the third step's got a lot to do, as I said earlier, with the depths and the conviction that I've taken the first step. You know, so as a result of that, the third step prayer, and then it goes on to say in the book down the bottom, it says, next we launched on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Well, isn't that true? I'd certainly never attempted to take inventory. I'd never attempted to write down my resentments or anything like that. I can never once remember when I was drinking you know, and getting into trouble over and over and over and actually having a moment where I considered, oh, maybe this is all my fault. Maybe I'm the one. Maybe I'm the cause of my despair. No, 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 I never did that. I was always looking for someone else to blame. I was always pointing the finger at someone else. But this is encouraging me now to take stock. And it says, though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things that were blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. So I had to get down to causes and conditions and I had to start to write a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. And um, as I did that, I inventoried my resentments, my fears, my sex conduct of the past and harms done to others. And I wrote all this stuff down and uh, in columns, like I'm encouraged to do, on page 65 over to page 67 in the big book, there's that bridge there where I'm uh, ready to look at it from an entirely different angle, uh, which I was. And there's a, a prayer there, the resentment prayer, which is part of that process. And um, I got together with a guy who I had asked to sponsor me and... Um, we started to go through my searching and fearless moral inventory. And uh, it took several hours to go through that. And I, I had told this man things that I never, ever thought I would ever tell anyone in my life. But nevertheless, there I was, I was doing exactly that, sharing everything. And I was being extremely vulnerable and trying to be honest for the first time. And when it was all over, I've got to say, um, it was like a huge weight had come off my shoulders. It's like I was finally able to empty the backpack that I'd been carrying around for so long. And again, I had no idea that's what I was doing, but I was. I was carrying around all this baggage, all this stuff. Um, 
and I just couldn't couldn't ever see. Um, excuse me for one moment. Yeah, I could never ever see that's what I was doing. I could never see I was the cause of my problems. I could never see it was beginning with me and the decisions that I was making in life. Um, so a lot of this, a lot of the truth was discovered when I took stock honestly. And um, I started to get free. And it was a, a wonderful experience for me to share all that with another man. And um, we never know what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous, do we? Because that particular man that I shared my fifth step with all those years ago, I think about three weeks after that, he was drinking again. And he died drunk. He never, ever made it. But he was there for me that day when I needed to share my fourth step with him. You know, so we never, ever know, do we? You know, what the future may hold. And that's why it's so important that writing a thorough inventory and doing a thorough fifth step, which is in three parts, admitting to God, myself, and another human being the exact nature of my wrongs, not do I just do that once, but I learn a vital, vital tool for the future when I'm going to go on and start to practice the 10th and even the 11th step as daily discipline steps in my recovery, day in and day out. So that process of taking stock honestly and writing inventory and being prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle has become one of the mainstays of my recovery and has hopefully most of the time certainly helped me to stay well. Because I believe we, we slip in inches, not in yards. I believe little bit by little bit, if I don't stay disciplined, that relationship that I want to build with God can get compromised again because I'm getting in the way. I'm taken over. I get back in the driver's seat and try and control things. You know, So I have to constantly remind myself I'm no longer running the show. And this is the way I go about doing this. So um, this, I suppose, has been the journey to start to establish that relationship with a loving God. It really started for me after the fifth step. And then straight away, as he, he uh, went home, the sponsor I had at the time, I did, uh, did the sixth and the seventh step basically straight after it. Um, once he had uh, listened to all my story, I became willing to let go of the things that I had discovered in my inventory in the sixth step. And in step seven, I asked God to remove them. And I got on my knees and I said that seven step prayer. And I love the first couple of words. It says, my creator. I really love that. That means if I believe that there is a creator that created me, that means if I'm willing, that creator can change me. That creator who created me can change me when I can't change myself. But I have to be willing to let go. So four, five, six, and seven. After I got out of the center in one, two, and three, and now in four, five, six, and seven, I've inventoried all these things. It's all about the mind. It's all about these thoughts that I trade off each day. So I had to take stock honestly about all those things and look at them. And as a result of doing that, I also came up with my eight-step list of the people I had harmed. You know, that's another thing that came out of taking my inventory out of the big book 
is that I established an eight-step list of the people that I harmed. And then I started to go about making direct amends to those people. Um, so by this stage, by this stage, I'm doing way, way better than what I was when I went to that first meeting. <laughs> way, way better. You know, I'm starting to feel comfortable in my own skin. I'm starting to smile a bit. I'm starting to laugh. I'm enjoying recovery. A lot of that restlessness and the irritability and the discontentment and the uncomfortability, um, a lot of those things are slowly starting to minimise and I'm becoming more and more comfortable with my recovery, which is extremely important. I'm starting to get a quality of life. I'm not only sober, but I'm sober and now I'm starting to find a bit of happiness. I'm useful again. You know what I mean? I'm able to reconnect and rejoin the human race, basically, that I had discarded as a result of my active alcoholism. So life is good. And it was that was a really exciting part in my life. I've got to say, I have never felt that way. All the years I've been sober since then, I have never felt as good as I felt when I was first going through those steps. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing, a wonderful awakening. Um and I did. I felt delighted. I could look the world in the eye. I really could. And it was such a wonderful thing. Um, one, I'll just quickly talk about one amend that was a difficult one for me. Um, I said to you early, I married an alcoholic who died drunk. Her name was Pam. Um, I could never make direct amends to her, of course, because she had passed away before I sobered up. Um, I was drunk at her funeral um, and I had quite a hard time coming to terms with that. Uh, I went through a lot of grief, a lot of loss, a lot of trauma because of the way she passed away. And that used to dog me at times because of the way I would think about that, even though I was free of many, many of the other things that were interfering in my relationship with my higher power. When it came to that one, um, I did struggle for that for some time. And um, I discovered the prayer in the story in the back of the big book, Freedom from Bondage, where the lady talks about praying for the people, uh, which I did. And I started to pray for my wife's happiness, her prosperity and her health, because I actually still resented her that she had died and left our son Luke without a mother. And I found that very difficult. But I used to say that prayer every morning and I would pray for Pam's happiness. I'd pray for her health, her prosperity. And after doing that, I don't know if it was two weeks or three weeks or whatever, I realised one morning when I was praying for her, I started to cry and I realised I had forgiven her. Um, so, again, these are all turning points on the journey, how my relationship was more and more established with the God of my understanding as these things were the wreckage of the past, if you like, was cleared away slowly but surely through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so these days, um, I am living in step 10, 11 and 12. And not a, so that's, I suppose, how I established my relationship with the God of my understanding was through steps one through nine. That's how I would say I established that relationship. 
how I have grown further into that relationship and improved my conscious contact with the guide of my understanding is definitely through step 10, 11, and 12, and the 12 traditions and the third legacy of service. As I've got in all three sides of the triangle and practiced the program in my daily life, I have continued to grow. Um, so step 10 to me um, is certainly a daily living discipline step that I can practice every day in my recovery. Um, and it's very important that I do this if I'm going to stay spiritually fit. And it talks about this on page 84, um, where it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. So what I'm being asked to do there, where it says we ask God at once to remove them, is to use prayer as a first response, not a last resort. That's what I'm being asked to do, to use that as a first response to my discomfort, is to take it straight to God and ask God to remove it. Um, and it says there, um, we discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So really in that paragraph there, I'm really being asked to practice the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth and ninth step all over again every day as a way to stay on track, as a way to stay spiritually fit and not get blocked off from God again like I was before. Um, and then there's a wonderful set of promises about after that. It talks about um, we're not fighting anything, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been in a place, uh, been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. And that's how I felt a lot for a long, long time about alcohol is that I feel that I'm in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. If I stay spiritually fit, if that relationship I establish with God is vital and it's working for me each day, I believe I will continue to be in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. But that's up to me. It's up to me to make sure that that relationship I have established is vital. You know, it actually says on page 164, there's a little sentence there that says, see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. That's what it says. See to it that your relationship is right. So that's up to me. So how do I do that? I do that through prayer and meditation, day in and day out. Step 11, page 86. You know, I wake up in the morning with prayer. So I wake up to step 11. And that's the first thing I do is I pray. That's the very first thing I do. And it says that, says that there. We consider our plans for the day. But before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking. So straight away into prayer. I ask God to direct my thinking. Um, and my thinking is either spiritual or at, at other times when I'm not so spiritual, some of the thoughts that cross my mind are crazy, I've got to say. 
You know what I mean? I Some of the thoughts that I still trade off these days are like, wow, where's that coming from? You know? Um, so I really need to be clear of these wrong motives. I really do. And that's what this is about. So straight away, I'm into prayer and asking God to be divorced from self-pity, dishonest or self-seeking motives. Um, then there's other prayers throughout the day. Um, there's a couple of practical things I like in step 11. Um, one of them is as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. Again, that's another prayer, asking for the right thought or action. Um, when I'm in doubt, which is really a form of fear, or when I'm agitated. So that's something, again, I'm using prayer as a first response, not a last resort. If I've got any disturbance or uncomfortability, I need to be awake to that. I need to be watchful as I go through my day. Uh, and then it says, we constantly remind ourselves we're no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. So again, I have to remind myself many, many times each day that I'm no longer running the show. And again, I like when I go for when I have my lunch at work, I work in a job that at times is quite stressful. It's working with people who are often in crisis and got lots of different things going on. So when I go for a walk, there's a park across the road from where I work and I walk around that park and I'm often saying to myself many times each day, thy will be done. And I'm reminding myself I'm no longer running the show. So again, I'm doing these things consciously. They're conscious little spiritual axioms that I can put into place each day as I'm going throughout my day. And then, as we know, on the top of page 86, there's those seven questions there. When I retire at night, I constructively review my day. And there's those seven questions there that I can ask myself. So it's like a safety net at the end of the day. So I begin my day with step 11. I practice 10 and 11 throughout the day. And then I finish my day with step 11 also by doing a constructive review and answering those questions. And then again, at the end of it, to finish the day off, there's a prayer there that says we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So I'm basically starting the day with prayer, praying throughout the day, and then finishing the day with prayer. So AA, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, particularly the chapter into action in particular, is peppered with prayers all the way through it. You know, this is not a do-it-yourself thing. <laughs> I'd have no hope if I was just trying to do this on my own. And I've been sober a long time, and I've got to say, more than ever, more than ever these days, I am praying to God more than I ever have. I really am. I, I, find, I find as I get older that life is very challenging at times. You know, going through certain things now in my 60s compared to when I got sober in my 30s, you know, you, you experience different life struggles at times, you know. So I need to establish not only the relationship that I've established with my higher power, I need to say, I need to make sure that it is vital. I need to make sure that it's working in my life each day. And I do that through prayer and meditation and practicing the 12 step, sponsoring other men, being in the third legacy, doing all the simple things I need to do each day. So I think my time is up. 
Um, I want to thank you very much for asking me to speak at your group today. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to share my story with you. And I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a safe and prosperous 2024, and certainly a sober and safe and prosperous 2024, one day at a time. Thanks for caring and sharing. Thank you.